Welcome. Welcome. Oh my gosh. Hello. Hello. This is Two Girls, One Ghost. One second. I'm swallowing my coffee. Okay. Two Girls, One Ghost. I poorly timed that. Uh, we are your ghostesses. That's, okay. That's Corinne. I'm Sabrina. Hi. What's going on? It's a... Uh, I feel like we should do like a check-in. I don't know. How are you, Corinne? How's life? Life is fine. I'm in the throes of wedding planning. I was not stressed about wedding planning when we first started. Remember, I was like, oh, I basically already planned the whole thing. Yes. I feel so bad whenever when everyone's like stressed about it. And I'm not stressed about it, but I'm just realizing because I'm not using a wedding planner or anything, and there are a lot of like vendors and details and like you have to t- bring in like bathrooms and like yes. all that stuff. I'm the only part that is stressing me out is that it all lives in my mind. And now I have to write it all down somewhere and create like a schedule and a binder so that it's understood what is expected of the day and what's happening and everybody. That's the thing. I just have to put it on a piece of paper. And that part is feeling heavy for me. Although I feel like you do love that kind of task. Like you go on Canva and you put together a beautiful display. Your binder is going to be aesthetically so pleasing. Well, I'll give everyone one preview of something. Oh, okay. I'll just expose. I'm not good at keeping anything secret. I've showed every single person my wedding dress. I've told everyone every detail. Nothing is a secret. It's hard to keep it a secret when you're so excited about it. I am. And it's also like, why? I don't want to, I don't need to keep it a secret. Like, yeah, it's not, I'm not high. I'm that day. I'm not going to be like hiding somewhere. And then people see me as I walk down the aisle, like I'll be around. Yeah, I'll be. Bo- I'm hey, gonna go to the free what's breakfast. Going on? Like, I, I'll be. I'll be around. I'm not hiding. Okay, so if anyone is looking on on YouTube, I'll give like a really a really quick preview. So my mom has her old '80s wedding dress, mm-hmm. and for Friday night with like the welcome dinner and everything, I had the sleeves, the big puffy sleeves, chopped off of my mom's dress, and I'm going to wear them. The sleeves. And I'm so excited. My mom FaceTimed me because it was completed. The sleeves were chopped off. Wait. And so I, I had her see. put them on over FaceTime and I screenshotted it. So they, it's kind of hard <gasps> oh to see. Oh my gosh, but they're so Aren't pretty. they so cool? Corinne, like, this is so fun. That is so I'm cool. I'm excited to wear them. That is so cool. I thought it was a fun way to wear it. Because my mom, she wears her, wed- her wedding dress for Halloween. Like it's not yeah, yeah. well taken care of. It wasn't packed away in a box and with the expectation of me wearing it. So it was a Halloween costume basically. And then I was like, can I chop the sleeves off? And she was like, hell yeah. I love yeah, that. Yeah, you can. I love that. I also love that your mom was just like, I'm going to utilize this dress and not treat it like a yeah. precious cargo because yeah, well, she almost should put use fake it. blood all over it. <laughs> and then I was like, well, can you wait until like maybe after I get married just in case I want to use any piece of your dress before you put bloody corn syrup down the front? And then the only other new thing in my life, I think, is that I heard a rumor on the internet. And by the internet, I mean TikTok. TikTok. So who yeah, knows if this did. is actually true. But I heard a, a little rumor that there were some documents about Bigfoot released by the CIA. And I have no idea if this is like the onion, like right. some sort of fake, silly news. I don't know. So this weekend, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to look. I'm going to Google. I'm going to see if it's real. And if it is, I'm going to try to read through it. I love it. Uh, you'll have to update mm-hmm. us. Speaking of reading What's things. What's Oh, well, real quick. You're reading. Reading, because this comes out February 26th. And I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. we are doing a Patreon live stream. Is it on the 29th? I think it is. Great question. Tuesday. <laughs> let me, what day is to? It's that Tuesday. I have it in our calendar. I don't know. You schedule them and then you just tell me when to show up and I do. (laughs) 
Let's see. But then I always struggle for the first five minutes to get in. Oh, man. I'm so dumb. There's only 28 days in February this year. So I didn't catch it. It is on the 28th. There are some Februarys with 29 days, right? Yeah, that's leap year. Okay. Every four years. Okay. I'm like, my brain just was like short circuiting. Okay. So February 28th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. If you are an only fan tum on our Patreon, we are doing a Patreon Live book club. And we are reading Many mm-hmm. Lives, Many Masters by Brian Weiss, which Corinne has talked about countless times. And I was mm-hmm. like, I haven't been able to sit down and read it. And so selfishly, we decided to create a book club to hold myself accountable. Have I started it yet? No. But by the time this episode comes no. out, I promise I will have read it. I also bought you the book and sent it to you because I asked yes. you for four years to read it and you didn't. So I gave it to you. Sorry. <laughs> I said, read this. <laughs> I'm going to do Please. it. I'm going to do it. Uh, and yeah, so yeah, join us on that. It's going to be great. Yes. Our little, our little book club recap of Many Lives, Many Masters. Mm-hmm. I'm excited for that. Me too. Me too. What uh, else is new in the world of Sabrina? What's your what's your check-in? That's a good question. Temperature check. I feel like I had something to say and it completely escaped my mind. <laughs> and so <laughs> there is no check-in. Um, hmm. What is something hmm. I can share? <laughs> I've been writing a lot, which is good. Um, I've been reading The Artist's Way, which I highly recommend for anyone in any regard of life. I think it is a very self-reflective book, but it is also really helpful for creatives to stop getting mm. in your own way of creating. It is so funny. I'll read certain chapters and I'm like, is this like a psychological analysis of me? Because yeah, you feel attacked. You're like, wow. Yeah. But it's spot on. Who was watching me for the past few years? Yeah. I've been having weird dreams. I don't know. I don't know. What else is new? (laughs) Life is weird. I really feel like I (laughs) I had something to say. Uh, Leia's cute. Life is life. life And we're moving forward. We are. And we're here. And things happen that are good in our future. Right? That was a horrible way to manifest it. Things happen that are good. Sometimes in the future. I really want to be that person who like wakes up. I feel like this is like the Cinderella dream that I want. I want to wake up in this beautiful mood and sing and then open the window and be like, I'm so happy. So I'm you're I'm, describing my fiance Brian. That is Brian. Wakes up cheery, rested, ready to take on the day, happy, singing. And I'm like, don't go talk the to the opposite. Me. Don't talk to me. Like I want to punch a hole through the wall. I don't I'm not a morning person. <laughs> I'm not a any, I'm also not a night person. <laughs> I'm yeah, that's me. I'm not morning or night. I'm a sleep person. I like to sleep. Yeah. I thrive when a I'm a midday sleeping. person. I'm not even that. I I I am at my <laughs> I am at my best when I'm asleep. Yeah. It's better for everyone else. I'm more of a joy to that be around says, when I'm that sleeping. Says a little, mm-hmm. I'm kidding. Some escapism seeping <laughs> through, maybe. Yeah, a little <laughs> right bit of avoidance, now. a little bit of a, you know, dealing with my anxiety. And um yeah. you know, sometimes you gotta listen to your body, but then other times you have to do contrary action. Whereas if you're tired, just do one thing that is opposite of that. You know, go walk down the block and be mm-hmm. like, oh, I did that. Okay. I did that. I did that. Yes. I've been trying to go on daily walks and I will say I never regret going on them, 
But sometimes I don't come back happy. I still come back grumpy because it's so freaking cold that I'm like, why did I just, (laughs) I could have been snuggled up somewhere or like I should have just done 60 laps around my kitchen island. But I will say the fresh air probably, while despite mentally and like emotionally, you might still have that anger or frustration, I guarantee the fresh air benefited you in some physiological manner. You know what else is a strange reaction that I have? You know when people just really enjoy something and they they don't know why they enjoy it? I cannot have a bad day if I see a tugboat on my walk. Oh. Which is so weird, isn't it? Like I just love tugboats. That's really cute. I even have tugboats a picture of them framed in my apartment. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Maybe it's like a past life thing. I I worked on a tugboat. I manufactured (laughs) tugboats. I don't know, but I'm I'm into them. They make me really happy. I love that. I'm a tugboat girl. I feel like I'll get into this in the episode when I start speaking. But I I feel that way about moats. Oh, moats. Ugh. You know what was such a shock growing up and researching these things is that I truly thought moats were these unbeatable forces and that they were around on all sides. And and really, they're I mean, they're impressive, but they're not always like they are in the movies. No, right? we're like, correct. there's alligators below and there's no way to get there and you'll fall 40 Sharks. down to the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but they're they still are very cool. Still very cool. I What else makes me oddly happy? Um, well, cats. Cats. And that's not Okay, odd. well, here's that's a question. That's straightforward. To, that's straightforward. Here's a question to combine sort of your two loves of animals and moats. So if you were in modern day and you had a castle or a house or, or some sort of property with a moat, mm-hmm. what would you put in the moat? Like what sort of – would you want animals in the moat? You know, because you don't um, necessarily need the moat for protection, I would assume. So, like, that's a good are there question. Sea otters? Are there swans? Are there a frog colony? So, what are you doing? I'm a big advocate of letting the animals do their own thing, and I think it would be unfair to keep them in the moat. So, here's what, and I, I, I'm, it's you know what I'm telling you now. I was going to tell you later, but I'll tell you now. I want a moat that is a swimming pool, so it goes all the Ooh, way around. A lazy river. It's basically a lazy river. Um, yes. So I prefer no animals or creatures. I do. I I don't know how I got here, but sea otters and seals, videos of them just bring a blast of joy to my heart. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I agree. Also, raccoons. People who have pet raccoons. I don't know that it's I think they're really cute. My dad had a pet wild raccoon when he was young. Wow. It was like a, a domesticated wild. raccoon that lived outside <laughs> on their property, like in the tree and had babies and everything. But they would like play with the raccoon and wow. the raccoon was part of their family for like two it. years. I love it. Yeah. A pet wild raccoon. But I, I'm with you on that lazy river. I feel like that would be so ideal. What oh. else would you do? Would you put anything else what in a dream. it? Maybe some like little fairy gardens. Oh, that's Mi- nice. I'm, I love miniatures. Anything that's so super tiny, I'm so into. So maybe I'd put like some hidden, oh, here's what I would do. <laughs> when you're going in your lazy river yeah. down the moat mm-hmm. in your tube or whatever you're floating on, I want to build into the side of the stone these hidden cities of <sighs> miniatures, right? Like enchanted worlds. That's cool. So you get to flash by. And like maybe there's little animatronics or something. Or maybe we just – make them really frog friendly. So sometimes there's a frog yeah. in it and you're or like, fairy that's friendly. so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Or fairy friendly. 
you know? I want it to look like it's being used. Like you might catch something when you pass by. I think that's a great idea. And to add to, okay, so to add to this theory, you and I have talked about having houses next to each other with a tunnel underground that connects the two. And the tunnel also Mm -hmm. doubles as a bunker. And we talked about having a lazy river in our bunker. But what if our lazy river is just above ground and we get to experience it and enjoy it in this life? And hopefully, you know, when after the apocalypse happens, we come out of our bunker and we get to enjoy it again. But this lazy river has basically I have my lazy river around my house you have a lazy river around your house and then there's like this little barrier between that you can open and our lazy rivers can connect yes yes and then it'll be like a figure eight lazy river oh I'm so into that absolutely I'm down okay also I don't even think we need to have anything in the middle that would redirect it I feel like we can just okay keep it a figure eight and maybe we're visiting each other maybe we're not if the other person's busy I don't care if you float by my house. Enjoy your okay. day. Okay. And also, can it, we talk about <laughs> The Last of Us, episode three? I because haven't I've seen never it. been so inspired. Oh, Sabrina. I know I need to watch it. I, I do. I need to get it. I need to start. Holy shit. Okay, well, spoiler, not spoiler, because it's now episode four. But basically, Nick Offerman is in it and he plays a survivalist. And so he has basically lived out my bunker dreams. <laughs> In that in that episode, okay, it's really magical. Get ready to cry if you for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. Episode three, all right, tearjerker. We'll have to talk about Rip it once out. I watch it. Wait, come here. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're about to get into a hefty episode. Drum roll, brrr, Sabrina's first two parter. I'm gonna ask <gasps> you, Corinne, to just sit back for a moment. And I am going to tell you a story, a fairy tale, if you may. Once upon a time, in a land that is just a hop, skip, and a jump over the Atlantic Ocean, there was a king. Mm. In fact, he was the first king of his kind. But becoming a king was no easy feat. Life itself was no easy feat for this king. His name was William, son of Robert, a duke, and son of his father's mistress, Tis began young William's troubles. He was born out of wedlock, during a time where this was frowned upon, thought as lowly as a flesh-eating fungus engulfing the body. William was called a bastard. To make matters more terse, young William's father died, leaving the duke title to William, and the land of Normandy was soon plunged into a violent and vicious civil war. Part of this civil war was a battle over who would control the young Duke William. William was terrified as a child, sleeping each night with guards watching over him, and one evening, Mm. his steward's throat was slit just outside his bedroom. Mm. He was immersed into a life of violence, and what was learned as a youth was adopted as an adult. How scary. What a traumatic childhood. William, as he grew, became brutal, known for cutting off the hands and feet of those who rebelled against him. Oh, this fairy tale is a little bit like Grimm's fairy tales. You know, it's dark. Okay. Just as a, yeah. if you can't tell. This isn't the Disney version. This no. is traditional fairy tale yeah. Also, it's a true story. It's not a fairy tale. William's unabashed attitude and lack of regret led him all the way to the throne of England, making him the first Norman king of England. He was no longer William the Bastard. Well, he was, but 
Now he was known as William the Conqueror. Like I said, this is no fairy tale. It is. But this is no fairy tale. It is a true story of royalty, love, money, children, money, torture, death, and the raring fight for power. It is the real life Game of Thrones. I was just about to say, I feel like you just gave the the tagline, the the elevator pitch for Game of Thrones. (laughs) I mean, yeah. I mean, European history and like royalty and fight for power is it is um, quite fascinating. Mm -hmm. So William the Conqueror invaded England in 1066 and soon after took his place on the throne as the first Norman king of England. But William knew that victory did not mean the end of fraught rebellions. No, he had enemies and he would continue to have enemies and there would be many who wanted to rise up against his rule. But William would have no such thing. So to protect his power and to show how much power he has, he sought to build a fortress. It was to be massive, the strongest structure of defense known to man. It should instill fear and make enemies cower. It was in the 1070s that William commissioned the construction of this fortress, utilizing the existing Roman wall and a large wooden castle was erected. Soon thereafter, a great tower or a keep was built and it was white. Therefore, it was called the White Tower. Hmm. Originality was key, of course. (laughs) William William had some other things going on inside his brain. Yeah, yeah. You know, naming a building is the last thing he he uh, could concern priority. himself with. Yeah, build it. That's all he cares about. William's reign has been regarded as the most extensive and concentrated castle building time in all of European history. William established nearly thirty six castles during this time, and the wow. Tower of London, or the White Tower as it was called back then was the most impressive. This white tower and beginnings of a fortress formed the foundation for what has become one of the most foundational and historically important buildings in British history. This is the story of the Tower of London. And like Corinne said, it is a two-parter. Very well could have been a three-parter. And I had to hold myself back because... I, growing up, was not a fan of history. I think I just didn't understand the impact of it. And I didn't understand the, like, storytelling aspect of it. It was more just like, oh, my gosh, this is so hard to memorize all of these things. And I'm overwhelmed by names, All of the names. Yeah. Yes. But now, in my adult years, I am obsessed and so fascinated. And I just wanted to take the deepest dive. And so as I was reading stories, I would just like go in rabbit holes and I would start searching other things. So my biggest caveat with this two-parter is that the focus is on the Tower of London. In order to tell the story of the Tower of London, it is also important to make note and mention the historical aspects of the royalty and English-British society as things changing and evolving in the time. Mm -hmm. I will not be able to cover all of it. So don't come at me, but I am going to do my best to share all of the very important facts that have to do with the Tower of London and make it very interesting and factual and fun. And if you like trivia, I don't know, maybe you'll learn a couple of things that you can use uh, at trivia night. Lovely. So if the Tower of London were a play, it would star many big names. 
Anne Boleyn, King Henry VIII, the six wives of Henry VIII. And don't worry, I will say all of their names in part two, and I will tell their stories more extensively because it is important to share their stories. Princess Elizabeth, Guy Fawkes, there are so many infamous prisoners, the princes Edward V and Richard, Duke of York, and the Beefeaters, which, please hold, I will explain and dive deeper into that name and that term, but for now, the Beefeaters, I will leave you wondering, cliffhanger. I'm immediately thinking Sweeney Todd. <laughs> really? Are there beef eaters in Sweeney Todd? Oh, just because there's the Just because they turn pies. humans into beef. Beef, quote unquote, and feed them. Okay, the this, eaters. this is a trivia question that I don't know, but mince meat pie actually has no meat. It's like a berry fruit pie. So I wonder where that came what? from. Oh, that's confusing. Now I want to. I feel look like they should up. change that name because I feel like more people would probably try it if they knew it was not meat. A little vegetarian. It's a mixture of fruit, spices, and suet. I don't know. It's like served during the Christmas season. I I don't know why it's called oh. minced meat. So mm-hmm. if anyone knows, please let us know because that's another trivia fact that we can share with all of you. But in part one, I'm just going to give a little bit of a what you can expect. In part one, we will dive into the history, the torture, the beheadings, the grand escapes, the underbelly of the royal life, and whisperings of rebellion, lies, spies, secrets. And the Tower of London was not only a place of violent executions, but also the home to many royals, precious gems, and a menagerie of beasts, both human and non-human. In part two, we will resume the story of the Tower of London, the prisoners, the stories of Anne Boleyn, King Henry VIII and his wives, executions, jewel heists, and then we will meander into the supernatural realm, the deaths, the conspiracies, and the ghosts. Oh, I'm so excited. This sounds so good. Good job, Sabrina. You've I haven't even, even started. I'm, I'm like, like 10 wow. minutes in. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And like I said, this episode is full of fun facts. In order to start, I have two fun facts for you. Great. Uh, this is like a little warm-up before we get into the, the minced meat of the okay. episode. The Tower of London is actually not the official name of the building. It is actually Her Majesty's Royal Palace and Fortress of the Tower of London. But it's too easier long. to just say the Tower of London. Correct. Yep. And then this one is maybe not true, but I heard it. And I want it to be true, so I'm going to pretend it's a fact and share it with all of you, and then we can all pretend together that it's a true fact. Okay. The word, and this is a curse word, so I don't know if anyone wants to shield their children's ears. The word fuck is an acronym. And can you guess what? I like how there was just a car beeping in the background. Like, it tried to stop. It tried. There was a natural bleep of your curse yes, word. Yes. It still bled through. Also, I don't know why sometimes I feel so uncomfortable cursing. Like, it feels like my child self is like, I'm doing something bad. You're doing something bad. Okay, but do you have any guesses as to what the acronym is? And and the clue is this: ha- it has a relation to the Tower of London and, like, royalty. Fun under Normandy Dynasty. <laughs> that would be fund. Wait, what? what? Oh, I'm th- – oh, oh, sorry. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know what? I don't know what happened there. <laughs> you had such confidence, too. 
my my clearly I stopped listening at a certain point <laughs> and just was like blurring my own thoughts. To tell you the truth, SpongeBob's It's the Best Day Ever was playing in my head as you were also cursing. Mm. So I think I combined, you combined the, the two. In there. Okay. Yes. Okay. Fun. <laughs> Do you want me to just tell you? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> also, I feel like I I wore this shirt to one feel very professional, but I also was like, I feel like I'm teaching a history class, so I'm gonna dress like a teacher. So to that regard. Aiden, our editors, can we do something very fun on the YouTube here where I will point and we have the F-U-C-K and all the word word that it spells. Okay. I love that. So the word fuck is an acronym for fornication upon Mm. consent of the king. Okay. Follow-up question. Yeah. Does everyone have to get permission from the king to fornicate or is this he provides consent for people to fornicate with him. (laughs) That's interesting. I don't know. And again, this, when I was looking it up, there were quite a few websites that were like, this is not true. The word fornication actually didn't come into text until later in time. But I was like, I'm just going to ignore all those articles because I really like the idea. (laughs) And then I was like, well, then I'll acknowledge it. all history needs to be factual. (laughs) We can we can still tell the fun parts of history that haven't right. been proven. Right. And also, it does work. So fornication upon consent of the king, it does work as an acronym. And I like to think that it is. It does. So with that fun fact, without further ado, Two Girls, One Ghost presents the history of the Tower of London. Buckle in, ghosts, because it's going to be a long one. <laughs> as I previously stated... The Tower of London was initially erected by William the Conqueror around 1070, but it brought jobs for a lot of people in the area. The tower was constructed along the pre-existing Roman wall on the north bank of the River Thames. It was massive, built of stone, and people would look at it and need to pick up their jaw off the floor because it was unlike anything ever before seen in England It took over 20 years to build, and the stone was brought in from France. It visually dominated the area and was expanded upon for nearly 200 years. So with each new reign, there were additions added to the tower. It began with the fortified walls and the White Tower. It was the keep, the place that, should the entire fortress be sieged, would have protected the king. It was the strongest structure. The walls were 15 feet thick. That's like three of me. Whoa. Yeah. Why? Was that to protect from like cannon blasts or something like that? Yeah, it was a protective method. It was one of the largest keeps in the Christian world and has been described as the most complete 11th century palace in Europe. It was very well thought out. And this is, I commend whoever was the architect of this. I mean, I never would have thought of this, but basically in order to protect the king, should the fortress be, you know, Penetrated. That that makes sense, right? (laughs) Fornicated. Fornicated. There were wooden stairs that could be removed so that no one can get access to the rooms where the king was. Like they could remove the stairs. Like, is that where... So, okay, this is bringing me back to all of the stories, the fairy tale stories of princesses locked away in a tower. Really, was it just the kings locked away in the tower? People took away the the ladders and left them up there? (laughs) 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. But but also, yeah, how cool to have this like built in, it's almost a bunker, but above ground, just way to protect yourself mm-hmm. from intruders. I don't think Your they had to be treehouse. used, so that's good. This place is beautiful. There were large rooms with fireplaces, towering walls surrounding the keep, and a moat all around it, further protecting the Heck keep. Heck yeah. Like I said, moats make me happy. Also a fun but also gross fact. By the 1840s, the moat smelt so bad that the Duke of Wellington was forced to drain it. There was a gross smell and an absurd amount of animal and probably human excrement in the water Uh, that they had to drain it, and it has been dry ever since. Yucky! Oh, Mm -hmm. that's something I never thought about is that there's no flow of it anywhere else. And if you don't make it into like a natural pond with some like algae and ducks and... Things that can, like, snails naturally filter a little bit. No, it's just gross. <sighs> it's basically just sewage. And think about, like, hygiene and lack of, you know, lack of hygiene. I yeah. feel like people were just peeing and pooping and dumping it everywhere. Nastiness. Yes. So the tower had many purposes, which evolved and changed throughout the years. But in the beginning, it served as accommodations for the royal family a fortress to protect from invaders, and a prison, which I think is quite strange and ironic to have a building serve both as the home for the royal family and also as a prison. But mm-hmm. I guess that is common in castles to have a prison. I, I don't yeah. know. Right, because they're kept in the dungeon. The dungeons. The prisoners. Well, We'll get to that in a minute, but not all of them were kept in dungeons. The inner area, so the area inside of the wall, has 13 towers that surround the White Tower. There's the Bloody Tower, the Beauchamp Tower, the Wakefield Tower, and the wall outside of the moat was built for cannons. In total, the Tower of London covers 18 acres of ground with just one entrance, again, to help prevent intruders from coming in. If there's only one way really in, it's easier to protect. That gate was named or has been nicknamed Traitor's Gate because it was the gate that prisoners were brought through when they were being led to the tower prison. The tower was a royal residence until the 17th century. It housed the royal menagerie, which I'll share a bit more on in a little. But basically, there was a quite quite a diverse collection of animals held within the keep. But the tower is perhaps most famously known for being a prison, a place of torture and execution. Many historic executions took place here, beheadings, firing squads, and also murders. The tower later housed the armory, the royal mint, and the crown jewels. And today, there is a military garrison maintained in the tower, and there is a resident governor who lives in the queen's house on the tower green this resident governor is in charge of the yeoman warders who are nicknamed the beef eaters hmm. so why <laughs> i will tell you these royal guards were established during henry the reign and they were permitted to eat as much beef as they wanted from the king's table which is how they got the name beef eaters so basically oh okay and that was yes. that was like coveted food, right? It was really expensive. Yes. A lot of people didn't eat meat unless they had a bunch of money. Right. And to be given the honor to eat from the king's table was also kind of a big deal. Because usually it was just like other royals or other high political powers that could dine with the king like that. Mm. But basically, Henry the Seventh 
wanted to have really acclaimed militia or military men who came and lived in the the Tower of London and were, you know, protecting him and the Tower full time, basically. So it was bas- it was a recruiting strategy for him. It was like, I'll get the best of the best yeah. people if I let them eat meat off my table and like give them this yeah. honor. I also think he regarded them very highly because it was like, these are the best of the best. These men are loyal to me and helping protect me. Mm-hmm. So I think it was a, it is a great honor and a very difficult honor to receive to be a beefeater. To this day, there are beefeaters that live in the Tower of London. Really? There are presently 37 beefeaters in the Tower of London. Um, and they still to this day report to the residential governor. And in order to become a beefeater or to even be considered to be a beefeater, They must have 22 years of service in the armed forces and must have been awarded the long service and good conduct medal during their time in the armed forces. Wow. Okay. Yes. So So there's not many people. No. There's not a ton of people who qualify for that then. Correct. Correct. They live in the Tower of London. And I could spend probably another 30 minutes talking about the Beefeaters because I think they're so fascinating. There's so much history about them. There's a lot of tradition that comes with being a beef eater like the um actually i'll talk about this a little bit in part two but there's the uh, i forget what the term is like but something like the queen's keys tradition that still to this day happens and the beef eaters are in charge of it but if you are interested to learn more about the beef eaters or how what life in the tower looks like there is one article specifically if you google megan clausen c-l-a-w-s-o-n she is a daughter of a beefeater and lives inside the Tower of London. And she, th- there's a whole article about her talking about life living in the Tower of London and how difficult it is to like get approval to have friends come over and visit. Wow. And also, I want her to start a band because Daughter of a Beefeater is such a good band name, isn't it? That is. Wow. Let's, let's send Meg- Megan a message. Yeah. Let's send her a tambourine. Be like, Come on, does this does this inspire you, this musical instrument? We'll send her a tambourine, a harmonica, and a triangle and say, this is all you need to start your band. Exactly. We already named it for you. Half the work is done. You- <laughs> that is, you know, naming a band is very difficult. And Corinne, you... Daughter of a beef eater. You've done it. That's a good one. She has I a record deal already. Just, she does. We're, we work for Sony Music. <laughs> Sony, don't don't sue us. <laughs> so now that we have a lay of the land and a understanding of like the structure and the lay of the land, basically the land of mm-hmm. the Tower of London, let's get into some of the more notable stories. As I stated, the tower is well known for imprisoning many, but it also served many other purposes. So in 1204, King John established a royal menagerie there because that was the year he lost Normandy and he was given a consolation gift of three crates of wild beasts that had never before been seen in England. What? Um, What are they? Hippos? Leopards, lions, and a polar bear. Pumas. What? Eagles. Frick! Did they get a polar bear? I know. I have. I don't. Or I don't know. Machine. I have no idea. They had (sighs) eagles, pumas, a jackal. 
And then when John's son, Henry III. I don't know what a, wait, what's a jackal? I don't even know what that is. Is it like a hyena type thing? I was going to say what I thought it was, but now I'm not sure. So I'm going to look it up to confirm. Now I'm just thinking of like a jackalope rabbit. It is like wolf-like. Yeah. It looks kind of like a wolf or a dog. Okay. When John's son, Henry III, took the throne, he brought a new creature that was so, like everyone was in awe by this creature. It drank and ate with its trunk and it was massive. It was an elephant. Oh, oh, sweet little elephant. I w- <laughs> it is sad because there was so much disregard for like treating these animals with humanity. Mm-hmm. And I think historically it was this like, ooh, look what I have rather than, oh, these are living, breathing creatures that you need to care right. for. And also they've never seen these animals before. They have no idea or knowledge of how to tend to and care for them. And they kept them like in the Tower of London. They're just like, ah, oh, here are these cool animals. Like, whatever. What? I mean, they they had they like couldn't a, have lived that long. No, so sadly, a lot of them did die shortly thereafter. They uh. were not given suitable places to roam. There was no education on how to treat, feed, or care for the animals. I'm curious about the elephant. I'm wondering if they got the elephant more from like the India area or yeah, I don't know Africa because those are very different sized elephants. Yeah, how large was this thing? I mean, again, this is another example of a way I could have gone down a rabbit hole and searched like the right. information of the very first elephant at the Tower of London. Um, but I don't have an answer to that. Today, there are no animals kept at the Tower of London, thankfully, but there are sculptures of some animals to commemorate the menagerie. And like I said, no longer are kept on the property. In the 13th century, the tower became the Royal Mint. And the production of coins was moved to the tower in 1279 to basically keep a closer eye on the production and keep it secure. And this remained in the tower until the 18th century. So basically the tower is I wonder so many. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I wonder what happened for them to move the royal mint there. Like to, to want to observe it more heavily. Was it just a desire? Was it just like a normal thing to be like, oh, we should probably provide more supervision and security over this process or had there been something happening was there a lot of fraud and yeah laundering of the money and and whatnot like i'm curious why they were suddenly like "Eh, let's move this to tower of london there must have been something but i also imagine perhaps who the king was at the time like there was some own desire or like self-serving desire i also wonder where it was before Uh, yeah i don't know right It's hard to let go of control. Yes. The tower also held government records, weapons, gunpowder, royals, and what we've all been waiting for, prisoners. And the very first prisoner of the tower is also the very first prisoner to have escaped the tower. No way. Wow. Good for you, prisoner. I don't know who you are or what you did, but it's impressive. Would you like to hear about this first prisoner, Corinne? Absolutely. Eagerly awaiting. His name was Ranulf Flambard. He was the Bishop of Durham. And I'm going to compare him, if we're using Game of Thrones as a comparison, I'm going to compare him to Littlefinger. Because after William the Conqueror was assassinated and William II took reign, Flambard weaseled his way to becoming the top advisor. And he was not known to be a good person. He basically, there was a quote that I read that referred to him and it said 
He skinned the rich, ground down the poor, and swept other men's inheritances into his own net. So he was a very <laughs> self-serving, not great man. Okay. And he had some crimes under his belt. Some reason to definitely. be in Tower of London, for sure. And you know what? When I was reading this, it made me think of when my dad did his past life regression, he was his, uh, his past self was coming through and his past self was a man who was like a tax collector and he hurt a lot of people in order to have self gain and financial gain. And I was like, was he flambard? Maybe. Wait, this could make a lot of sense because you've been so connected to the Tower of London and talk about it all the time and your fascination with it. And this has been like a three-year-in-the-waiting episode when you're finally wanting to tackle everything that, that the Tower of London has to yeah. give. So maybe the connection to it was because you either are tapping into your dad's past life or maybe you and your dad had lived a life previously together and you were there. Maybe you locked him away. <laughs> maybe you were the one that arrested him. Definitely not. Um, maybe, <laughs> if anything, I probably was one of the victims. <laughs> Oh, man. But yes, I'll ask my dad because I do think he got a name when he was doing the past life regression. So I don't actually think it's Flambard, but similar to him. Mm -hmm. So together, Flambard and William the second were a vile pair. Like the two of them, we, they were just like not good people. They let power get to them and they had no regard for anyone else really. And they didn't care who they ran over in uh, their journey to the top. But then William II was on a hunting trip and struck by an arrow and died, which I think is, oh. I don't know, it feels very Game of thrones -y again, but also, um, yes. was it accidental? Who knows? We're just, there's just so many ways to die. It's I just, know. It, when I hear stuff like this, I'm like, man, just every day going out into the world, even if you never leave your house, there's so many ways. You just never know. You never know. You never know. That's why I'm glad we don't live back then. I mean, even today, there's plenty of ways to die, but- I think it was way worse. It was way worse yeah. back then. We don't have to avoid dysentery and yeah, yeah. stuff like that. So William II dies and his brother Henry I took the throne. And within the first 10 days after his coronation, Henry arrested Flambard and charged him with embezzlement. And so Flambard was taken to the Tower of London and officially was the very first prisoner held at the Tower of London. But usually when you think of like, inmate and imprisonment we think of a small dungeonous room like maybe the, a, if there's a window it's tiny and there's like a little slit with a little bit of sliver of light you know terrible treatment poor hygiene but this was not the case for flambard he was given a suite of rooms and servants what he could dine with the royals basically it was a life of luxury but he couldn't leave how in the hell what who decided that I do not know. I feel like it wasn't supposed to be that way. It's just someone took a liking to him and wrote, and they were like, oh, well, he's actually pretty cool. <laughs> Let's just invite him yeah. up. Yeah. I also think because he had notoriety and the backing of some people, it was like, okay, you are a menace to society. We need to punish you. And so you have to stay here and you can't leave. But you're used to a certain type of lifestyle. We'll give you that, that element mm. of it still. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It makes no sense to me. But that's how it was. Flambard was like drinking and feasting with people in the palace. And um, he was also the first to escape because 
Apparently, this luxurious imprisonment was not enough for Lombard. He wanted to leave the palace. He wanted to roam. He wanted to do his own thing. So he orchestrated an escape plan. He had a barrel of wine brought into the tower and invited the guards to his quarters and was like, hey, who wants to do a wine tasting? And um, he got them drunk, so drunk (laughs) that they were passed out. And he used a rope to shimmy out of his window and took off on a horse and then took a boat to France. And then incredible. It gets even crazier. So Flambard makes it to France. You think like, okay, he has this freedom. He's going to go move on with his life. But no, he's like, I want power back. I'm angry. I want revenge. So while in France, he plans a coup and he invades England. What in the world? Also, the fact that he even escaped his life of luxury. Like, I don't think I would leave. I think I would stay. I'd be be like, like, free housing, free food, a group of friends, lots of entertainment, plenty of animals that are intriguing to look at. I live in a castle in a tower. In a suite. Sick. Suite of rooms. Yeah. Lots of security. No one's coming for me. Right. He was so lucky (laughs) to have been arrested and sent there. What is wrong with people? I mean, it... He also lived a different life. He lived that type of luxur- luxurious life just on his own free will outside of that. So he, you know, he wanted that. So he plans a yeah. coup. He invades England and he fails. And even though he attempted to overthrow the current king, Flambard somehow ends up getting his bishop title back and lived peacefully until his death. Okay. Okay. Why did no one think witchcraft was happening from him why did no one scream (laughs) witch witch because clearly he was putting a spell over everybody oh yeah i don't understand everyone was in love with him everyone forgave him that's weird i mean he must have just been manipulative and charming and it it really does remind me of Littlefinger, or even in the new series house of the dragon it's like the hand of the king who is you know weaseling his way into all these different aspects so that even though he doesn't have direct power he is connected to the direct power yeah or maybe he had just some wild blackmail on everyone having lived in the tower of london yeah who knows you know he saw some stuff from a lot of people yeah he's like leave me be yeah if you don't want all of this to come out Don't know how he managed it, but he did. And so he lived peacefully until his death. And after Flambard, there were many prisoners held in the tower. Their treatment varied quite quite vastly from luxurious, similar to Flambard, to lethal. Some, like Flambard, could bring in servants or were allowed to go on hunting trips or go shopping. And it reminds me of like weekend prison where like during the week, People can go do their job and everything. And then on the weekends, they spend them in prison. Um, There was one guy who brought his dogs. Like, he was imprisoned in the Tower of London, had all these suites and servants, and brought his pets. I want to know what other prisons looked like outside of the Tower of London. Is that a normal thing? I don't think it's normal. But because – and then also, there were others that were treated really poorly and held in what we expect of a medieval prison cell. And I actually visited the tower. Right, because it's medieval. Like, yeah. where are the rats burrowing from away from the heat into people's stomachs? Where are the <laughs> crazy torture techniques? Like, none it's of there. that's happening No, here. it's there. It's there, but there's just both ends of the spectrum happening. Some people dine with the royals and others are tortured. Correct. Correct. I actually visited the Tower of London 
in, oh gosh, I, maybe 2008 or 2006. I don't remember. I was pretty young, but I remember going and doing the tour through it and seeing, you can see like these prison cells. Like I said, this place is massive. So there's so many different buildings, but I did remember seeing prison cells that were what we expect of a medieval prison. The Tower of London secured the reputation as the foremost state prison in the country and was considered an unbreakable prison, even though the first prisoner did escape. But, you know, it's all about the right PR. I guess so. But I feel like that was after the first escape. That's your opportunity to change how you talk about your prison. You don't double down on saying it's inescapable. Like before it got too big, that was your chance to, to change and yeah, your marketing. But I guess, yeah, it's all about PR. It's all about the right PR team. I guess, too, when when there's royals involved and off with your head is a perhaps a regular statement, it doesn't really matter what you say, because if you disagree with the wrong person, you're dead anyway. Yes, yes. Between 1100 and 1953, some 8,000 people were incarcerated and held prisoner within the walls for crimes ranging from treason conspiracy to murder, debt, and sorcery. And with the fight for power came many rebellions, coups, and attempts to siege the Tower of London and, you know, dethrone the current king or queen. So there are more prison stories, and I will get to them, but I wanted to tell a story of rebellions. Again, there are so many of them that it is impossible to name and detail all of them, but there is one Rebellion. Actually, there's only one rebellion that actually succeeded in breaching the walls of the Tower of London. So that is the one I will tell you about. It was called the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. And as a trigger warning, as I go into this story, and it's probably only a minute long, there is quite a bit of violence and sexual assault. Okay. Game of Thrones. There we go. Yes. So around 20,000 rebels gathered and marched toward the Tower of London when they were enraged by Richard II's new poll tax. And Richard II, for some reason, agreed to meet them and address their concerns at the gates of Tower of London. But as soon as the gates were opened, the rebels stormed the fortress, which, duh, what did did he expect? 20,000 angry civilians? They took violent action. They found the Archbishop of Canterbury and his companions and butchered them. And it is said (gasps) that it took eight strikes with the executioner's axe to actually sever the Archbishop's head. And then they put his head on a spike and placed it on the London Bridge. The mob ransacked the castle and horrifically and brutally attacked and assaulted the women in bedchambers. Oh. Which is very sad. It's horrifying. Yeah. And and the tower was no stranger to violent acts and bloodshed, which is all very important to make note of and remember when it comes to the immense amount of paranormal activity on the grounds of the Tower of London. Because like we know, this type of violence, this type of energy leaves energetic stains on the land. More to come about that in part two. The tower was the setting to many royal celebrations, but there were also many royal tragedies. The heir to the Scottish throne, King James, the first of Scotland, as he would later be named, was kidnapped in 1406 and taken to be held in the tower. And eventually he was released or, you know, traded as a, you know, prisoner of war used for ransom, which was common because a lot of kings would take prisoners during 
you know, fraught times or battles against other countries near, Mm -hmm. you know, and they would use these prisoners for negotiations. They would use them to be like, well, if you do this, we'll give you this guy back. Or they would take them for ransom and say, hey, we have your guy. Pay me X amount of money and I'll send them back. Right. The tower was fired upon during the Wars of the Roses in 1460, forcing Henry VI to surrender the throne. And Edward IV took control and then imprisoned Henry VI. And then Henry VI was then murdered while at prayer in the king's private chapel in the Wakefield Tower. So basically, again, there's just so much turnover. There are so many people, you know, fighting one another. There's there's own siblings fighting one another. So much murder. So much murder. But perhaps the most infamous and mysterious stories from the history of the Tower of London is that of the two princes. So after Edward IV took power from Henry VI, he lived, he had two sons, and then died in 1483. When he died, the throne was left to his 12-year-old son, Edward V. But seeing that he was only 12 years old, they deemed that he was too young to rule at that time. So Mm -hmm. his uncle... (laughs) Richard, Duke of Gloucester, Gloucester, how do you say it? I feel like Gloucester. 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 But in Massachusetts, it's Gloucester. Gloucester. (laughs) He was made Lord Protector. So basically, he was temporarily running things and protecting 12-year-old Edward and his younger brother. So under Richard's protection, 12-year-old Edward and his younger brother Richard were confined to a room in the Tower of London. So talking about, you know, the princess up in the tower, these were the princes in the tower. They were kept up there. Wow. And what happened next is a mystery. To this day, no one knows what really happened, and it probably will always remain a mystery unless when we get on the other side, we get one question, and I decide to ask what really happened to the princes, and I come back and I tell the world. Sometime during the fall of 1483, the princes disappeared, never to be seen again. They were last. I feel like they escaped and lived a life somewhere else. I would love to believe that, but I do not think that's the case. And I'll tell you mm-hmm. why. Okay. So during the, so basically the last time they were seen was in public was in the summer months in uh, 1483 and then poof, gone without a trace. And guess who, uh, strangely, benefited the most from their unexpected disappearances? Uncle Richard III, who was supposed to be Lord Protector. Because once the 12-year-old prince and his younger brother were gone, guess who became king? Richard. No. King See, Richard III. This is the problem with, with lineage. I feel like there should be some sort of voting for who in the family gets to be king or queen. Because otherwise, it just leads to this. Murder, because you're trying to be the next one in line. But even then, Corinne, like if if there was some voting, people are going to be really unhappy with that and want power for themselves. And they're still, you know, and then they're still going to murder everyone so that there's only a few people to vote for. Right. I mean, a couple episodes ago, I told the story of the, you know, the the castle where the brothers were slaying the dragon and the one brother actually slayed the dragon and the other one was like, well, I want the notoriety. I'm going to kill my brother. So what people do a for lot money of bloodshed. And fame. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Richard III becomes king, and a lot of 
people justifiably so believe and theorize that the boys were murdered, that their bodies were buried in the night and never seen again. There is a belief that the boys were smothered by their pillows while they were sleeping. And there's one story that says Sir James Tyrell confessed to killing the children in 1502 when he was sentenced to death for treason. But there's Mm -hmm. no proof that he did. And um, some people think he was coerced or there's also some people who are like, he never confessed to it. I don't know. In my mind, it seems like Richard III did it because he had the most to gain. But then also Henry Tudor, who became Henry VII in 1485, also had a lot to gain from the young prince's death. Because, and then to add to that theory, so there's obviously Richard III, the theory would be he wanted the throne for himself. But Mm -hmm. Henry VII took the throne from Richard, and when he took the throne from Richard, he accused Richard of many crimes. But he didn't add the death of the princes to that list. And then apparently the death of those children was not announced until 1486, which was a year after Richard died. So I was like, wait a second. One, why didn't people question what happened to the princes? Did they think that they just disappeared and or went away like or was Mm -hmm. it just not announced that they had been pronounced murdered i don't know and why didn't henry charge richard with you know killing the princes it's very confusing a lot of mystery it is it is yeah is it game of thrones there's there's some show or movie it might it probably is game of thrones where something similar happens where there's like a fire in the square and the the two princes or the the prince and princess are like basically taken. And I think one of them lives and the other one is murdered. And they're huh. brought through an escape tunnel. What is that? I don't know. Maybe it's like Pirates of the Caribbean or something, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Maybe. Someone will know. Yeah, someone will definitely know. Comment in YouTube or email us. There's mystery. But then, like I said, I do believe that they were murdered because... In 1674, there was an interesting discovery made in the tower. The then king, Charles II, ordered the demolition of a portion of the White Tower, which included a turret that contained a privy staircase that led up to St. John's Chapel. When the workmen began to deconstruct the stairs, they found a stunning discovery a wooden chest buried within the foundation of the staircase. Upon opening the chest, they found skeletal remains. As you can imagine, a discovery like this caused a whole lot of hullabaloo. And with this discovery, it was determined that the bones belonged to two children. They believed the children, the bones belonged to children aged 10 or 11, and then the other 12 or 13, the ages of Edward and Richard, the missing princes. So there's no way to confirm whether or not the bones belonged to the two princes. I mean, when they were discovered in 1674, there's no DNA testing. There's no way to be certain. And the mm-hmm. um, to me and many other people, it seemed very likely that it was the two princes given the correlation to age, height, and the whole, you know, being buried secretly under the Tower of London stairwell. And their deaths benefiting someone else greatly. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. There's the motive. King Charles II actually had the bones moved to Westminster Abbey, and there's been a lot of desire to present day test the skeletal remains for DNA evidence, but the crown has denied those requests, basically saying, we believe it's the princes, let's just leave them 
resting peacefully. And then there's some people who are like, I don't think it's the prince's bones. Like the Tower of London was built upon like old burial grounds. It's probably just like random bodies. But then to that, I say, okay, why did they not find any other skeletal remains when they were digging up this stairwell? And why, why, oh, why, oh, why were these two skeletal remains put into a chest? You know why, Corinne? Because whoever murdered these two boys didn't, I mean, hey, you can't just kill someone and wander around the tower with their body thrown over your shoulder and say, hey, I'm going to go bury this. No, you hide them in a chest and you bury it secretly and no one knows where they went. I'm surprised they weren't just put at the bottom of the moat, given how much stank and nastiness it probably had over many, many centuries. But they would have emerged eventually. Like you can't, like bodies float. Unless you, you weigh them chain down. them up and yeah. Yeah. But Gotta I guess. learn a little bit from, from organized crime <laughs> and uh, I do the think, US. I mean, the, the, the thought of a body surfacing from a moat in a moat is probably more likely than the chance that someone's going to dig up and deconstruct the stairs, you know? True. I mean, I do feel like it is. The, the princess given I, I agree. all that has been presented it seems like it is but there's another part of me that's like why can't we test because what if what if it's not what if it's not and then there's the big mystery of what happened like this mystery is a mystery that we think has been solved but we don't know for certain and if it actually hasn't been then that's a whole other thing where but it hasn't been solved right like we can pre- but it's a, it's presumed yeah, that it's them these are the people Right. I mean, but if it's not them, then it's like, where the hell are they? Yeah. I mean, regardless whether it's them or not, there's no answer to who murdered them. There's only theory. There's no answer to what happened. And um, just that they, I believe they were murdered. I believe that those bones are theirs. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we don't know who did it. I also want to understand the psychological effect of murder that, that was had on people. 500 years ago, right? Because it was so commonplace. There was just so much of it. Yeah. Was there that much resistance? Like, what did it do to people? How did they feel about it? I mean, also think about executions. Like, they were a public experience. It was people brought their kids to go to executions in the public square. It was such a yes. part of society. And the freaking Coliseum. We're like, oh, let's take these wild beasts and let them rip other people to shreds. Yeah. Amazing. How amusing. Yeah. Thank God we have television now. Thank God. And also, thank God that was enough generations away that hopefully it doesn't, it's not embedded in our DNA. Although, if you think about it, there are some like underground secret rings of fights and and violence like that. So (sighs) people are messed up. Speaking of messed up, back in the day, the Tower of London was known as a site of torture. And there are a lot of museums of torture in London in that area that claim that those held in the tower were tortured relentlessly with the use of many archaic devices, which, yes, is somewhat true, but then there's not a ton of records that have been kept to back up the claims of constant torture. But then again, why would there be records of like, hey, we're really proud of all this torture we're doing. We're going to write it down. So on this day, employee number 1095 spent some time torturing this person. They missed eight fingertips this day. Hooray. Ripped off the fingernails and saw the blood drip down. Yep. You get one smiley face sticker for your participation. (laughs) Thank you. One gold star. Employee number 1095. (laughs) Anyway, so again, there's a little bit of vagueness 
in detail here, but it is known as a fact that they did use the rack, which is a torture device, where prisoners were forced to lie down with their hands and feet bound by ropes, and their limbs were slowly pulled outward to inflict pain. It's like being stretched uh, at all. I hate that. Opposing angles. It's like House of Wax. Do you remember yes. that movie? Oh. Where they put her between the trucks and then they rip her apart. That was like oh, the first horror movie I ever saw. Yeah. So, yep. The Achilles heel in that. Just ugh, all the torture in oh, House God, of Wax. Oh, God, I hate that part. So oh. gross. It's so gross. It's bad. But yes, the stretching is disgusting. Yes. So I'd rather be crushed. Ugh, I don't know. I mean, it's all bad. I'd rather just not mm-hmm. not experience it. <laughs> Same. I, I also Same. think of um, Princess Bride, where he's tortured in like the weird tree underground thing. I've never seen Princess oh. Bride. Oh, okay. So torture and death were commonplace in the Tower of London. There were a total of 22 executions inside the Tower of London and over 100 executions on Tower Hill, which is the public space just outside of the Tower of London. So majority of prisoners met their fate on Tower Hill. Pirates met their fates on the banks of the Thames at Execution Dock, which I just had to share because I want people to know about that, but I won't further discuss it. But maybe in the future. This is such a wrong visual of Execution Dock, but Mm -hmm. I think because I've never been anywhere that has like authentically a place where someone was executed still like stuck in in time Mm -hmm. you know the in my mind i was just thinking about like hilton head and florida and all like the canals and and beautiful and like disney and i was like oh that kind of sounds like a fun place to go like grab a burger oh my god but it's really pretty right by the water Here's what I I will say. I think a better visual is Pirates of the Caribbean where the pirates are coming in and there's pirates hanging like as a warning. Yeah. I don't think it's a – Yeah. But because you love pirates. We're not not at Magic Kingdom or – Correct. But because because you love pirates, I felt that was a detail I could share with you. So there were uh, quite a few execution places throughout the area, but – There were quite a few who um, were executed inside the Tower of London and then on Tower Hill. Those executed within the gates of the Tower of London were more notable, and these were private executions. So basically only the people who had access to the Tower of London were invited to these. So in the same way that some of the prisoners were given a lot more advantages and luxury when imprisoned in the Tower of London, those are the types of people Mm -hmm. who, if sentenced to death, were executed within the walls of the Tower of London, one of the most notable being Anne Boleyn, which we will talk about next week. The methods of executions varied based on crime. So beheadings were used and considered more dignified. Hangings were for the lower class prisoners. Firing squads were used mostly for spies. And then burning at the stake was for more religious crimes. This type of execution was actually only utilized twice at the Tower of London or Tower Hill. And then there was also the hanged, drawn, and quartered, which was the most brutal method. Victims, and this is, I mean, I feel like I should have given a trigger warning before I started talking about the methods, but this, the detailing I'm about to share is even more trigger warning for violence. So hanged, drawn, and quartered was where victims were hung by the neck until the almost 
died. They were then revived and placed onto a table where their body was cut open and their entrails were removed and then set on fire. Then, oh my God. And that's not even it. And then, like, talk about overkill. After this, their corpse was divided into five pieces and their head was placed on top of the London Bridge. And then the four quarters of the body were posted in the four corners of the city. What the fuck? I know. I think the acronym fuck just stands for fuck. (laughs) It stands for fuck fuck, is going on. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck, 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 fuck. Yes. Oh my God. This is violent. Who, Who, like, I can't even picture myself living in that time. Like, there's just an eight year old who skips by happily next to a quartered body, and they're like, well, guess that's the body of the week. Like, what the? Yeah. This is why I want to know how people's psyche was. Oh, well, clearly messed up, but that was the norm. I don't, yeah. I, I guarantee Yikes. there are probably psychological studies done, but I guess it's hard to do a, an evaluation and analysis of someone's psyche when they existed hundreds and hundreds of years ago and there's no access to mm-hmm. their minds to actually uh, analyze. So oh. for over 800 years, men and women of all classes were brought and held in the tower. Some stayed for only a few days, others never left and took their very last breath on this oh-so-very-haunted land. The stories of death and tragedy have only just begun. Next week, we will dive into Henry VIII, his quest for a male heir, and his willingness to do anything to obtain one, even if it meant betraying the church and beheading his wives. We will also explore further tragedies, conspiracies, theft, and the fate of spies during the world wars. And then we will examine the other side, what happens after death, Who and what lurks the historic grounds, bent on revenge, seeking loved ones, and taunting the beef eaters? The beef eaters! The beef eaters. And that is next week, my friends. Hooray! That was so good. (laughs) I feel like it's a lot of... Just my stomach and knots from the torture. The torture. I, I feel like this episode, and again, I, I truly, this could have been a three-parter. There's so much. There are so many stories, but I felt like this episode is just laying the groundwork. A lot of historical context. Yeah. And then context next week. Context still is confusing the hell out of oh, me. Oh, absolutely. There's, yeah, it's hard. It's not like there's consistent patterns of behavior. Right. Either. And there's still plenty of mysteries with what happened to who and yes. why someone did this. And I mean, there's a thousand. Where did the plus, elephant go? Like, <laughs> yeah, there's a thousand plus years of history to discuss. So mm-hmm. the fact that I'm doing it in less than three hours or maybe a little bit more than three hours to me is um pat on my back. But also it's impossible to share all of the information. And then there's hundreds of years of ghost stories. So again, that could also mm-hmm. be its own thing. So this is a prime example of yeah. there's been a few topics that we've covered before where we're like, this could be an entire podcast series yeah. season. Yes. Like a whole series where season one is the Tower of London, 12 episodes. Yeah. Right. Like. Just totally. Really big topics. And I did lots of history. I am pretty sure I covered the ghost of Anne Boleyn in the past, and I'll have to look up what episode it was. But 
I think you did. I think I did too. So there is a, you know, if you want more information about Anne Boleyn after next episode, I will send you to that episode. Perfect. A little supplemental, a little, yeah. little bite for you. Yeah. Everybody for Anne Boleyn's history. Or while you're waiting for next episode for part two, go check out that episode. Should we know? Let me look up what that is because I feel like it's okay. rude of me. To say, go check out that episode and not tell you what it is. And not know. Not know And when. not know. Okay. In O. Okay. It was episode 160. And it's also, Corinne, where you covered La Llorona. So that's a good episode. That's a, yeah, that is a good episode. It's a haunting episode. It is. It is. 160. Episode 160. Check that out Perfect. if you want to prime yourself for the Amblin stuff next week. Or if, you, I don't know, after part two. Check it out. People live in the Tower of London now, right? Like people yes. can just rent apartments. I don't know that you can rent apartments. It's still a government building okay. and it's it's a massive tourist destination now. So you can do tours and all of that. There's museums on site. But I think, and I'll confirm for next week, but primarily the people who live there are the beef eaters. <laughs> It's just such a silly title. It is. It is. It is. But it makes sense. Like they they ate beef. They ate a lot of beef. It just it kind of feels like calling someone like a booger eater. You know, like it feels almost like an insult. (laughs) But it's supposed to not be right. Like it's supposed to be such a compliment and have so much respect and praise for this person. Yeah, and all that they've done. But then we call them beef eaters, and it feels feels like like something that childhood playground insult. Right. You exactly. beef eater. Like you can't sit with us in third grade, you beef eater. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but there you know, there's also a gin called Beef Eater Gin that originated in England and it's a popular gin oh. brand and it's based off of the uh beef eaters. The beef eaters. Hmm. Okay, beef eaters. Perhaps we'll come to the Tower of London. Yeah. Sabrina for her second time, me for the first. And also, I mean, their official name is the yeoman guards so they do have an official mm-hmm. title but in a um you know easier more uh easier to know and remember name it, they are the beef eaters their nickname i hope they have like a little rugby team like a pickup rugby team and they all have shirts that say beef eaters on the back or something you know uh they're be actually the, i think i have this in part two but their uniforms are like so detailed and beautiful they basically cost like eight thousand pounds yeah what they're so intricate have you seen all the videos of the queen's guards when they when they march and and they're in a pair together they'll scream basically for people to get out of the way and if they don't it doesn't matter you're getting plowed over and i literally watched them step on a child like on a like seven-year-old child just trample a child the other day Jeez, yeah they are i mean tradition is key to them they that nothing will break the Nothing will break them or their tradition. Like the videos of people mm-hmm. trying to make the Queen's Guard laugh. Um, but yeah, they're very stoic. Yes. Well, I'm excited for next week yeah. to hear even more about the Tower of London, all the mysteries and the ghosts. Mm-hmm. That'll be fun. More gruesome, more bloodshed, and then a lot of ghosts. So I don't have a story specifically from Tower of London. So if anyone out there has experienced anything, email us. But I figured we could save that for part two because I didn't want to expose any of your research before you okay. give it to us. But I did pull a short email from our inbox from someone who lives in London, is from London, a London listener. Okay. So we can hear from a haunted person in <laughs> London. 
<laughs> I love it. Okay. This is from Kirsty. Hi guys. I'm from London and I've only just started listening to your pod. Been looking for a good paranormal one for ages and it's just great. Straight to it. My dad has never really believed in ghosts. He's interested when I talk about it. I'm a bit obsessed, <laughs> but he's always got the what ifs and perhaps it's this or that. My nan, my dad's mom, got quite unwell and had to stay in a hospital. My dad went to visit her and she seemed okay. The doctors and nurses told my dad that she would probably be discharged that afternoon, but they needed to do a couple more tests and checks. My nan had a dog named Gemma that she absolutely adored. My nan lived alone with Gemma. And so she asked my dad to quickly go and check on Gemma and give her a little cuddle, etc. The neighbor had made sure that she was fed, but my nan wanted her to see a family face. Aww. My dad said that he would go and check on Gemma, do some bits and bobs around the house, and then go back to collect her from the hospital. When he was at my nan's house, Gemma had a huge fit on the floor, mouth foaming, shaking, just really scary stuff. My dad was so scared and just held her and all he could think was, my mom is going to come back from the hospital and see that her dog will be dead. How awful. Ugh. He remembered looking at the time and it was around three-ish in the afternoon. Gemma suddenly stopped doing this and just sat up, looked at my dad. She was completely fine. What? This freaked my dad out, but he was just so relieved that she seemed okay. So my dad left to go collect my nan from the hospital, but when he arrived, they said that she had had a bad turn. She had suddenly and sadly passed away. <gasps> they said this happened at 3 p.m. Not massively scary, but definitely a reason to believe. Lots of love to you guys, Kirsty. Okay, my first concern is how did they not call him immediately? That's what I was thinking too. But I think it just happened so quick that it probably was just the doctors were, all the medical staff was probably rushing into the room. I'm sure it happened in moments. Oh my gosh. Wait, so Gemma and Nan are so connected that Gemma knew. Oh my gosh. I Now I'm thinking like Gemma knew that that Kirstie's nan had passed and wanted to go with her. And momentarily, Gemma's soul was with Nan on the other side. Oh, I think you're right. I just got chills because she was foaming. She was thrashing. She was doing all this stuff that like it was almost like a seizure. Like she was about to die. Like her her soul was being ripped from her body. And then Nan was probably like, no, no, Gemma. You have to stay. You yeah. have to stay. Oh, oh. Isn't that so, I mean, it's it's awful, but it's just like, man, this is, her dad who didn't believe this is a great example of just how connected people can be with their yeah. pets or with other people and just with the paranormal space in general. There's so much that can just seem like a freak thing that happens, but right. really it's just a reminder that we are so connected and that things, there's so much more beyond what we know and what's available yeah. to us right now. I'm also curious, Kirsty, if your dad after that experience, does believe in the ghosts, in the paranormal. Mm -hmm. or if And where's Gemma? Did she go live with you? Yeah, where is Gemma? And I want pictures of we Gemma. We want to see a picture yeah. of Gemma. <laughs> yes. If you're going to bring up a pet, you have to you send have us a picture. To send a picture. Okay. That is a requirement. It's it also is. a requirement that you send us your stories. So if you have any paranormal stories or if your friends or your family have paranormal stories or supernatural, Bigfoot, whatever it is, creepy and strange and unusual, send it to us. Email it to us at twogirlsmongostpodcast at gmail.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen and tell all of your friends because this is a pyramid scheme. This is a get Bermuda triangle of two girls, one ghost. We're trying to get you lost and a lot of other people. So disappear into some ghost disappear. stories with us. Ooh, I like that. 
Um, and then so come back. Our, we'll add it to our website. <laughs> yeah, disappear, disappear with some ghosts or into some ghosts. Into some ghosts. Oh, oh my gosh. Okay, and come back next week for part two. There's gonna be a lot, a lot of fun, a lot of darkness. Yes, yes. I'm so excited. And thank you to our editors at Fire Digital, Aiden Manning, and the entire team. We're so grateful that you uh, cut out our burps and uh, strange things that we do during recordings. And thank you to all of you. We love you and we will see you, see you on, on the, the other side. side. Bye. Very spooky.